1: This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez.
2: I'm Tabidi Agnapwile. And I'm Ben Brophy.
1: In this episode, we are going to talk about how we look at history. And, and we're going to start with one particular part of history, uh, you know, the, how we remember the Civil War and the Confederacy. But actually, really, this is an episode about how we think about and write history generally and why that even matters. Um, so it's a topic this summer that's been in the news a lot recently. Um, we've already talked about George Floyd, and many things have come out of that movement, police reform obviously being the biggest one. But one other aspect I think that we've seen um, has been this issue of our history and how we look at history. And in the case of the aftermath of the of the George Floyd protests, it has been in a lot of ways about uh, the Confederacy and our legacy of racial injustice. Um, so just a couple of examples from sort of recent headlines. Um, that are noteworthy, I think, because this has been an issue as long as any of us has been, have been alive. But I think the amount of movement we've seen on it in these recent months has been pretty astonishing compared to, say, the last 20 or 30 or 40 years. So on June 30th, the state of Mississippi retired its old state flag, um, the last one in the whole Union that has a complete emblem of the, the Confederate battle flag on it. Um, they retired it. and They're going to do some work to replace it. That same flag has been banned by NASCAR at its races, um, where it you know, was sort of a com- somewhat frequent presence. Um, all over the country, whether because protesters are, are doing it or because the government's doing it, statues and monuments to Confederate generals and leaders are being taken down. There is a debate still running right now about renaming uh, current uh, military bases in the US that are named, you know, something like 10 of which are named after uh, Confederate generals. Um, and um, just a few weeks ago, uh, Princeton University removed Woodrow Wilson's name from um, its public policy school and from one of its residential colleges, which was a big deal, not because Wilson, well, wilson on, on the one hand, is probably the most famous person who ever went to Princeton, but on the other hand, um, not a Confederate, but a sort of a racist, a person who, as president, you know, resegregated the civil service, did a bunch of bad things, and they said, you know what, we actually don't want to put his name on our public policy school or on one of our residential colleges. So. These are just a couple of examples of some of the movement that's taken place in recent months. And the arguments that for doing it, I think will be well known to most of us. Um, I'll say number one, the Confederacy was established um, to defend slavery, so we shouldn't be honoring it. Um, The Confederacy was itself an act of of treason, of rebellion against the government. Therefore, we shouldn't be honoring it. Um, But there's a reason why none of this happened until these last few months. Why this has been an issue for so long? Because there's, for as long as we've been alive, and much longer than that, um, a lot of pushback on the arguments, on arguments like that. So let me just rehearse a couple of them. Um, one, which I think most of us actually would have grown up learning in school, is sort of the idea that the Confederacy wasn't actually primarily about slavery; um, that it was about something else. It was about states' rights, uh, a preservation of a certain way of life. Uh, if you ever watched the movie Gone with the Wind. Uh, It's a great example of sort of this idea of there was this pretty romantic world and we were fighting, to the the South was fighting to defend it, that nothing, it had less, little or nothing to do with preserving slavery. Um, This is part and parcel of something that we've referred to in the past on the show um, called the so-called lost cause mythology. Um, The idea that we fought a civil war, it was a brutal civil war, um, but that somehow um, there was something worthy about the cause of even the ones who lost. Um, in addition to the worthiness of the cause of those who won. In a way, it was the myth we made for ourselves to enable reconciliation. Um, it was a myth that was made between Northern whites and Southern whites, essentially, in order to do that by kind of brushing slavery under the rug. And, you know, there's, a, there's actually a, a, a quote that I dug up. Um, I don't know exactly where it came from, but it, was in, it appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle and it says, they say that history is written by the victors, but the Civil War has been the rare exception. Perhaps the need for the country to stay together made it necessary for the North to sit silently and accept the South's conception of the conflict. In any case, for most of the past 150 years, the South's version of the war and reconstruction has held sway in our schools, our literature, and since the dawn of feature films, our movies. Um, That is starting to change now, but I think for most of our lifetimes, that has actually been true and we can unpack what that means. Um, And it continues to this day. I just wanted to note in, in researching this episode, there are a whole bunch of Southern states that have laws dated in the 21st century, prohibiting or making it really hard to remove any statues or monuments honoring the Confederacy. So Alabama in 2017, Mississippi in 2004, North Carolina in 2015, Tennessee in 2013, updated in 2016, um, and so on and so forth. Um, So- so,
3: One question, removal how, like, what is the, explain that more, like, they don't want people to tear it down willy-nilly or actually the procedure for removing them is burdensome.
1: I'm pretty sure it's the latter because in general, there are generally laws against defacing or removing any sort of statue, right? Like, But this is like, if you wanted to legit officially take down a monument for reasons like the ones we're discussing here, it would be very difficult if not impossible to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'll say only one other thing, which is that the pushback is at least in part let's preserve this aspect of our history, the Confederate aspect of our history. But it takes one other form, which is essentially to make a slippery slope argument, right? And that's to basically say, look, you want us to take down statues of some very bad people, or you want us to remove emblems of a very bad movement. Even if we concede that th- those were bad people and that was a bad movement, where does it stop? Do we then have to take down um Statues of people who were kind of good but problematic, and sort of the the common example given is you know someone like Thomas Jefferson, someone like George Washington. Both of them did some important things. Both of them also owned slaves. Um, and in fact, if you look at the sort of sharpest nature of the pushback, um, you can look you, you could fi- you couldn't find a better example actually than the president's speech that he gave at Mount Rushmore um, the day before July Fourth. Um, two quotes from that that I think are just, I think actually capture pretty well the argument that would make here. Um, It says, our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Many of these people have no idea why they are doing this, but some know exactly what they are doing. Um, And the other the, uh, you know, the other, the other quote I'll say is against every law of society and nature, our children are taught in school to hate their own country and to believe that the men and women who built it were not heroes, but that they were villains. Now this goes, this pushes really hard towards this idea of they're attacking the founders and the founding too, and not just the Confederacy. So, um, and that's an argument that actually has to be taken seriously, even if there are some extreme pieces thrown in there about trying to destroy our country, trying to be violent, etc. The point here is that, how, what do you say to the person who's saying, this is an attack on sort of the founding or on our history. It's an attempt to erase history, right? Um, and and if you're on the right, you'll say, well, shoot, you know, uh, leftist movements try to erase history all the time. The communists tried to, you know, sort of erase history. Like, is this just that? So that's the ar- the way the argument goes on the other side. So those are some, those are some of the things I want us to talk about today. Um, and Thabiti, to I think my question for you in sort of looking at these issues is, I was trying to think what the Bible question here was. And I think the question is, what does the Bible tell us about how we should remember history and in how we should talk about good and evil and justice and injustice in history?
2: Uh, It's a good question. I'm I'm glad you uh, labored a little bit to try and figure out what what relevant thing could I ask the meeting, uh, since the Confederacy is not in the Bible. Uh, Add it to the list
1: of things not in the Bible that we talk about every week. Uh,
2: That's exactly right. Uh, It's the recurring uh, part of my answer here. Um, Let me me sort of sketch some thoughts, though, uh, coming at it, um, sort of getting to the history question at the end, so to speak. Um, but trying to sort of deal more specifically with um, the Confederacy, the Civil War, and monuments, and then sort of work out toward history. Um, and let me start again with texts that I think many people would see as seminal texts here that have to do with government, First Peter 2:17, honor the emperor, Romans chapter 13, which we refer to quite a bit. And here I just want to refer to it uh, to, to make sort of what might be an ironic point. Uh, It's funny to me that many of the people who would evoke Romans 13 to say that Christians should not protest against the government or something like police brutality actually treat Confederate leaders who tore the country apart as heroes. If Romans 13 militates against protesting for rights that the Constitution grants, (laughs) and, and, and it doesn't, but if it did, then Romans 13 surely prohibits efforts to overthrow the government, sure. to secede from the Union and found a whole new country, which is effectively what happens. It's, it, the Confederacy is, a, is an attempted coup. Uh, it's, a, it's a civil war. It's a splitting of the country. So one part of my answer, Nick, is just uh, is it, a common sense kind of answer. We ought only memorialize persons and movements that support the Constitution and the unity of the country and never those who intentionally sought to destroy. It It just seems common sense to me. And for me, in principle, that's that's one of the ways you can draw a distinction between your Washingtons and your Jeffersons, and later Confederate generals, or quote-unquote heroes. Uh, In the one instance, flawed though they are, and we're never going to have any heroes that aren't flawed, In one instance, flawed though they are, you actually have people attempting to build something, to build the country. In the other instance, you actually have people trying to destroy that very work, trying to tear it down, uh, abandoning the principles. Um, So in that sense, I don't think it's very American at all uh, to celebrate the Confederacy and to celebrate the the Confederate uh, leaders, since they were actually trying to destroy the Union. Now, Let's, let's sort of go then to a sort of wider view from the scripture on this question of memorials and uh, who we celebrate, how we, how we mark history. Um, we, we often use the term idols to refer to this history, this sort of lost cause history, uh, people idolizing Confederate heroes, things of that sort. Uh, let's, let's take that charge, let's take that word seriously for just a moment and, and ask ourselves the question, what, what does the Bible require us to do with idols in high places? The short answer is to tear them down, mm. right? That is all throughout the Old Testament, the sort of tearing down of high places, the tearing down of anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Um, and, and surely man-stealing, slave-trading, uh, things about which the Confederacy was formed, according to its, its own secession papers, uh, is, is a massive engagement in idolatry. Um, and, and 1 John 5:21 couldn't be clearer. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, so we're going to need to be careful of both um, of, of sort of idolizing folks uh, and of allowing sort of histories to become idolatrous to us in terms of how we worship them and how we respond to it, how we protect our idols, which is our tendency, uh, and to think really carefully about tearing down the high places in that way. Now, when you ask yourself the question, well, what kinds of monuments and memorials are established by God's people in the scripture, um, it's, it's really interesting. The, the word memorial appears a number of times in the Bible. Uh, usually, God's people are, are called to memorialize the deliverances of God, Exodus twelve fourteen, 14, uh, regarding the Passover as a memorial to that deliverance. Next chapter, Exodus 13, 9, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is to be celebrated uh, as a Passover, uh, or excuse me, as a memorial for when God spared the firstborn. Exodus 17, 14, uh, the the war with the Amalekites. When Israel destroys the Amalekites and Aaron is having to hold his arms up and Aaron and her are helping him, uh, immediately in verse 14, God tells um, um, Moses to write this account as a memorial. So there are aspects of scripture that are memorial in their function. Many of the offerings in, in Leviticus were memorials to the Lord. Joshua 4, God commands Joshua to take 12, 12 stones uh, and to stack them as a memorial uh, to the Israelites who cross over the, the Jordan River. First Samuel seven twelve, 12, um, there um, Israel has gotten the Ark back from the Philistines. Uh, and First Samuel seven twelve says this. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called his name Ebenezer, for he said, "Till now the Lord has helped us." And and so we we even remember that passage in phrases like "Raise mine Ebenezer." Um, and so uh, most of the Old Testament memorials are erected by God's people in order to remember the deliverances of God in their history come to the New Testament, Acts 10, 4, I think it's one of the few places, maybe the only places where you find memorial mentioned. There, the gospel is going to Gentiles. An angel appears to Cornelius and says to Cornelius that his prayers and alms, his charity, were a memorial before the Lord. Uh, So in the New Testament, sort of spiritual acts of worship become memorials rather than stone and brick and things of that sort. So I think it's interesting to, to hold a couple of these things together. In, in in the Old Testament, no statues, no images at all, are admitted in the worship of God. Right? That that would be a form of idolatry. But the memorials are erected to his acts, to his to his deliverances. Um, I think that's maybe instructive, because most of the memorials that are erected in the country are erected to men and not their acts. And so we, we are, in a very real sense, idolizing men when we do this. There's a real temptation and a danger there. And perhaps part of what we should be thinking about as Christians is, is how do we mark God's providences? How do we mark his acts? How do we mark the things that he appears to have done in the history um, as, as ways of celebrating uh, rather than building these shrines uh, to persons, flawed, all of them? Um, There's a real sense, based on on what the Bible teaches here about memorials, uh, there's a real sense that that any Christian kind of caught up in these arguments about statutes of Confederate soldiers uh, have been captured by the wrong kinds of heroes. Our our memorials, again, I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry, should be to God, for God's work, if we're taking a pattern of the scripture, not to man. Um, And as we think about history, and as we think about sort of memorializing history or setting it down, then I think the broad point we'd want to make is we, we want to be truthful. We want to always be telling the truth. Uh, the truth makes us free. But then it, when, it turn, when it comes to things that we want to be celebrating, I think Philippians 4, 8 should probably be our guide, right? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things our monuments could help us do that. Um, but I think we're going to have to think harder about history and think harder about what's praiseworthy uh, and set those things down, uh, particularly as as they point to God's providence, rather than simply carving out uh, images of men uh, and then fighting each other about such images.
1: I think uh, I got two two thoughts on that. One, you've just made me realize, Thabiti, that Statues of people are like never a good look wherever they appear in the Bible. That's right. Ever. Right? Right. Like, you know, you think of the book of Daniel, think of Acts and sort of how we think about any statue of anybody, right? Doesn't yeah. doesn't yeah. end up doing well or voting well. That's right. Um, if I think about just contemporary DC and I think about our famous monuments, I think there's a difference there between, and not to place any judgment currently on these guys, but the Lincoln and Jefferson Memorials are both basically big, you know, grandiose buildings built around figures of those people, right? Lincoln seated, Jefferson standing. The Roosevelt Memorial, which is in the same kind of general area, has images of Roosevelt, but actually, it's a walkthrough of sort of the history of his presidency. It's,
2: it's my Depression. favorite. It's, it's an if you ever come to D.C. and you're checking out monuments, be sure to get on that hop on hop off bus so you, so you can find the Roosevelt because you can't find it very easily unless you know where you're going. Yeah, get no on way. get on that hop on hop off bus and get off at the F.D.R. Um, and walk that thing. It it is it is the most worthwhile monument I think among for the presidents uh, here in the city. And it's fun
3: fact fun fact if you play pokemon go there is a ton of pokemon (laughs) (laughs) whoa
1: well there you go huh ben what do you so what do you think ben of uh what we just said
3: oh i mean i think a lot of things i think you know i think the cultural argument you know they want to say they want to make it two sides they want to make it either you are pro keeping the statues up and therefore like pro confederacy or you want to erase our history and tear everything down like a like like a rioter and so as so many of these things the 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 lines just don't fall that way um so i think yeah i mean i think yeah to caveat a million things i mean i'm not for people tearing down statues on their own i'm very much for governments deciding to remove uh statues not just of confederates but of of like frank rizzo in philadelphia was one that the city of philadelphia decided to remove because he was quite harmful to the african-american community in philadelphia and i was very much in favor of that so i i don't i have no objection to cities removing people who who represented evil in a lot of ways um i think both of your points about statues of people just not being a good look uh resonates strongly i we talked about this before but again I'll, I'll raise it again on the under on the underside of the capitol dome there's a painting of george washington that's right. called the apotheosis of washington he's literally being raised up to the status of a god and we all kind of go, oh, you know, it's like he's not a god, uh, like yeah. he's not. And and I think we most people know that, but why the heck did we put that up there? There is this, there is this kind of, oh, you know, it's okay because we're doing some, some myth building for, you know, American culture, Wh- whatever, whatever that means. I mean, it's funny Washington himself like demurred quite a bit. Um, you know some people believe he was falsely modest, but he presented a face of modesty fairly frequently, and I do wonder what he would think of so many things being built after him um, in his image anyway um yeah i think I think Fabidi, one of the things i I thought i I heard you say is being discerning about who we're going to get rid of is 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 something to do like what i mean is you actually can do that <laughs> yeah if somebody is morally reprehensible getting rid of them is 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 okay um if it's it's more than okay it's morally righteous <laughs> right right, right. Yeah. exactly and i think and i think you made a good point too of like you know the founders flawed as they are you know they were they're trying to build a system whatever you know whatever you may think so maybe there's a distinction there um you know, if, if the government decides that they want to take down statues of Jefferson or Washington in a peaceable way, like that's no skin off my back either, which is probably a really controversial thing to say in some quarters. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I will, that was a lot, that was a lot of wind up. I will say like, I do to, you, you read two quotes from, from president Trump and the first one I think there's some – I do wonder if there's some merit there in the sense that there does seem to be an appetite amongst, you know, the protesters of it's all bad, tear it all down. Like a a statue of Frederick Douglass got torn down. Like obviously they don't know the history of Frederick Douglass, um, but they just tore it down just because they wanted to tear it down. I think that – there is an impulse there that I think is – is wrong and needs to be, needs to be checked. Um, But at the same time uh, you can understand why people are really upset about, you know, members of the, of the KKK having statues, the Confederacy having statues, right? Like you can, you can understand that. Um, But, but I do think there is some valid critique of some writers that they are being indiscriminate on what parts of history they don't want to honor anymore. So I see statues as an honoring of whoever. And there's a lot of people that we honor that we shouldn't. Um, and I think that there is an element of whoever, the rioters, protesters, whoever you want to name, um, that want to kind of tear it all down and have that kind of, I don't know, yeah, destructive impulse that is, is not good. So let's take,
1: that's good. Let's take a break and let's, when we come back, let's go ahead and actually get into that question, right? Like at what point do we, is that, is that potentially, is what we're doing now potentially going too far? So let's take a break and then talk
0: about that. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption.
1: Ben, let's pick up with your question, um, which is essentially, uh, what is it, you know, is it possible for this to go too far? Or are we erasing too much of history? And I guess I'll start in just saying, I think that even the conception of, of erasing history is, is a challenging one, right? Because history isn't just in what we honor or in the statues we build. Um, it's in sort of how we tell the story for those people are. So for example, no, no one is saying, let's pretend George Washington didn't exist, right? We are saying, I think, let's tell the story of John George Washington in all its fullness, right? Right down to, you know, he owned slaves. Also right down to that modesty may have been false. Like I wanna know, right? Like I wanna know sort of all the good and the bad. That's part of how we study history. Um, good history textbooks or good history courses kind of contain all that nuance with statues, all you kind of have is a one dimensional, we honor this person, we put them up on a pedestal, which, is, which may be why, you know, when push comes to shove, fewer statues in general is probably a good thing. Uh, so that's my, that's my kind of initial take on it.
2: No, I, I think it's a good take, I'm sympathetic to it. Uh, I'm not sure how much statues accomplish in the way of actually teaching history. So I, I think that it feels to me a fairly contrived argument. Most of the statues that most of us walk by, we don't even know who that is um you know and and often we read the plaque and we still don't have a sense of their historical importance um and so i i think too much may be maybe being claimed for the idea that not only history is being erased um but but even that history is being taught uh, by the monuments uh, i don't i don't think that's the best way um and again i think there there are ways of remembering history which is more than just persons Uh, there are ways of remembering history that don't require statues, that don't require um, the sort of lionizing of persons. And we're probably going to be better off if we remember history in those ways, in those more complex ways, in those more textual and and rich ways. Um, We're probably going to be more likely to access the lessons of history, uh, the wisdom of history, if we do that, instead of the sort of static posed hero uh, and, and a couple of factoids about when they were born or when they died or some valiant thing um, omitting large parts of other parts of the biography. So I just don't, I just don't even think it's responsible storytelling uh, in that sense, uh, much less is it a erasing of history.
3: Yeah. I don't think taking down monuments is an erasure of history. I didn't, I didn't want to, I think Trump was making that point. I don't, I'm not making that point. I do think there is a, I think to put a finer point on what I was trying to say is there is a, there is an element um, of folks who want to tear down, you know, who, who I'm associating with people who want to tear down these monuments, maybe that's fair or unfair um, that wanted. So that wanted to distort history in a certain way. So I think right now, at least in the age that I grew up, uh, American history is distorted one way. You know, George Washington didn't chop down the cherry tree, cannot tell a lie, all that, all that good stuff, right? Like that is very much the milieu that I grew up in. States' rights as a as an argument for the Civil War, that is definitely something I was taught in school.
1: Um, I was taught that in California, growing up in California. Like yeah, that's I've, how deeply penetrated.
3: I was in New Jersey. It's not a, not a conservative state. I, I very much remember you know slavery was a secondary issue states rights was the primary issue and um but like i don't know that a person who has only read howard Zinn's A people's history of the united states is is not equally distorted so i agree so i what this is a roundabout way of me agreeing with what t just said which is we need a a fulsome holistic view of these people like yes washington george washington had slaves we need to we need to Tackle that head-on. Uh, he had dentures that were made from slave teeth. Like these are these are uncomfortable facts about you know the f- the first president of our country. At the same time, like he was extraordinarily brave in the middle of battle. He was extraordinarily dedicated to his troops. Uh, he was willing to walk away from power after two terms, which is kind of a big deal. It sets a precedent for the presidency moving forward. I'm everything I'm referencing is from Ron Chernow's biography of Washington that came out like 10 years ago. Um, and it's a good read. And he does, he does, he's probably more positive than negative. Um, but he does treat all of Washington instead of just parts. Yep. So I, I think like, yeah, I, it's, it's hard for big groups of people, um, particularly people on, on, of any persuasion that don't want to do the work, But I think what I want to argue for is a full picture of who these people are. And, and you really only get that through study. Right. And so um, I'm just, at this point, I'm just repeating what Thabiti said, but I think. Study,
1: not statues. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think that's, you know, I, I, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, it's all, I think that's all true. And I think that, you know, if we, if I, I, to bring it back, right. If our, our anthropology should help us with this right we are made in god's image we are all sinners and so every historical figure other than jesus is going to conform to that pattern was that was
2: that for don lemon
1: <laughs> oh, did, 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 he say that? did I just like reinvent on my mentor.
2: No, he made some comment about Jesus being flawed and, and not perfect while on. Oh, earth. <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> I thought you were uh, helping uh, him no, out a little no, bit. No.
1: no, it was a bit of everybody else, right? Like so every historical figure we study, one of the, you know, the nerdiest, coolest historians are going to like delight in telling you about the good and the bad, right? All the nuance, all the detail of each sort of flawed life because. That's what we should expect from every single leader. There is no, we should not pin our hopes. I remember, I remember being in high school in the nineties when the truth about Sally Hemings was like definitively proven vis-a-vis Thomas Jefferson. And I had a U.S. history te- I was taking U.S. history at the time. And this teacher, he was a total history buff, loved his subject, which was great, um, was a big fan of Thomas Jefferson. Was so sad the day that came out. Not because, I, I think, not because he said, you know, I'm, I don't believe it, but because he was disappointed, right, just to learn that that was actually true. And it just, I mean, put not your hope in, you know, in men, right, and in in heroes, and however interesting they may have been. I do think that's really, really important.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, this sort of textured telling of history uh, is really helpful. So we've we mentioned Jefferson a couple of times. Uh, it's interesting. I'm, I'm reading a book right now called What Kind of a Nation. It's about um, the Jefferson's presidency and John Marshall, Supreme Court justice at the time, and some of the, the run-ins that they had. So you get it into Marbury and Madison and all, all kinds of things. It's interesting. Jefferson, when he comes into office, he's probably in that era, he's the state's rights guy right? He's a Republican, right? States rights guy. And, and he's really up in arms about the federalists and feel like the federalists have, have sort of too centralized um, and strong a, a federal government. Uh, but he is very self-consciously also conciliatory and working for the preservation of the union, right? Mm-hmm. That's a really different thing than the later states rights guys who take us into the civil war um in In defense of slavery and so on who are, who are willing to shred the constitution to shred the union um for for their own point of view, see, I think good history would even take all the folks who claim states' rights and kind of look at how they actually responded to the country as an ideal and as a reality and compare them and contrast them and and we would learn from that um but again, sort of statues don't statues don 't do that uh really. Teachers do that, good historians do that, Um, people who are willing to read a book and and to sort of sift through information are able to do that. And I'm not, uh, part of what I think the fights about the statues also indicate is we become a very sort of symbol obsessed culture um, rather than a a very conversational culture. And so uh, whenever symbols are threatened, people are up in arms and fighting, Um, they're emoting a lot um, because of the symbol. But but very rarely pausing to say, what's the story? Uh, and, and what do we learn from the story? And how should we honor the story um, in its fullness? Ben, when you mentioned the um, Frederick Douglass statue being torn down, I, I wondered, and we talked a little bit in the break about which, which statue you were talking about. It turns out it's the one up in New York um, that apparently were torn down, not, not by protesters, but um, sort of counter protesters, perhaps. Uh, but there's this interesting story here in DC. Uh, about the the statue over in I forget the name of the park. Forgive me. Um, in in, in um, Frederick Douglass had 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 sort of um, responded to that statue at the time. He you thought it was hideous.
1: Park? You mean the Lincoln Park statue?
2: Yes, the Lincoln Park statue.
1: Your 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 biography of Douglas will op- opens with this story, I think. Is that
2: right? He and thought I'm it was kidding. hideous, right? Because he, he wondered why the slave was pictured kneeling um, and things of that sort. Now, depending on how you look at it, artistically, the slave is rising or some such thing, or the slave is cowtowing, right? You know, it's eye of the beholder to some extent. Um, but there were folks who were wanting to tear it down, and other folks defending it, um, but few folks who knew the history right? A few folks who kind of knew the story it seemed uh, of the statue itself and even Douglas's reaction and other people's reactions. And so I just think if we can get down into the stories and learn from them uh, and mine them for truth and read them as, as, you know, all of history is just a retelling of God's providence, to, to read them, read history as God's providential dealings with the world. I think as Christians, at least, we could get to a richer place and richer understandings.
1: I think, um, so Ben, there was a question that you asked earlier, which I, I want us to cover before we go to break, which is you were saying, well, and then what about, um, what about our Christian heroes in American history, the ones that we talk a lot about? So, you know, the one example of which is just, you know, Jonathan Edwards was also a slave owner and an unrepentant one um, at that regard, uh, but also, you know, a, a theologian we look to a lot. Um, or at least some, some, some in our circles do. What do we make of someone like that?
3: Yeah, no. I'd, so this one is a little slightly personal for me in the sense of like, um, I've read a fair bit of Edwards and I've been edified by it quite a bit. Um, and so one of the things I've been considering is like, this is very, this is very nerdy. So. Buckle up. Uh, is like picking a, a quote-unquote dead mentor, like somebody in the faith who you're going to read everything they wrote and then kind of go back to it periodically. Um, and I was considering Edwards for mine. I mean, knowing full well he was a slave owner, right? But there's, you know, online conversations over the past, like, month or so, you know, have kind of, like, named him as somebody that evangelical, white evangelicals love and really want to skip over the fact that he was a slave owner. Um, and, you know, obviously really missed it as it pertains to, you know, man stealing. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, I've been, I've been ref- like, I've reflected on that personally. Um, I think it certainly does change the conversation or the evaluation when somebody's a Christian um you know just because there is a there's a higher standard there um at the same time like I'm I'm reminded of um the fact that you know Luther wrote horrible things about people who are Jewish um John Calvin let the city council burn a man um not let but gave his tacit approval to um and so like I think you made this point already all of our heroes are flawed but there is something about a persistent participation in sin that's like, yeah, it gives me pause. So I'm curious how you guys evaluate it. Um, and I like I still read Edwards, and and it is, yeah, it, for me it is. It helps me exalt Christ, and I find the writing really helpful. But now, yeah, I do. I am kind of rethinking that now. Um, open, open process. So I'm curious what you guys think.
2: Yeah, w- one of the things that this whole conversation just reminds me of is, is we have to be careful that we are sort of reading history and dealing with history rather than sort of hagiography and and the tendency again to um, write these flowering, you know, depictions, superhuman depictions of Washington or whomever the case may be, Edwards may be and from a Christian perspective, I think it's really important um that we also resist hypocrisy in giving our heroes a pass and condemning the folks we think are villains so let me contrast this conversation about edwards by injecting dr king because there are a lot of folks who who would just glow and gush over edwards and and go yeah yeah yeah," just sort of pass over the slavery bit as a small thing because he wrote these beautiful treatises on Mm -hmm. on the glory of god just sublime literature well there are many wonderful poets that are in hell. Um, and nobody's ever been saved by their doctrine. Uh, we're saved by a living, abiding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's possible to be a wonderful theologian and yet be dead in your sins. Now, Edwards actually knew that man-stealing was wrong. The one, the one bit of writing that we do have from him where he even touches the subject is actually in defense of a, a minister, Doolittle, uh, who doesn't share Edwards' theology uh, in terms of the revivals. But Edwards has been called to his defense, uh, and sketches out, you know, some brief defenses. And what Edwards took took sort of umbrage at, as as one of the Connecticut River gods, as one of this this kind of um, elite, um, aristocratic, almost old world English um, kind of ministers, he took umbrage at the fact that the people would dare to fire the pastor, right? Um, and so he came to the defense of a pastor who didn't share his theology, who was in fact, um, that pastor was, was kind of abolitionist oriented. Um, and that's why the people were upset with him. Um, and, and yet Edwards is, is defending this man on a point that he knows to be wrong biblically. Um, it, it, it's, it's worse than the idea that Edwards is a person of his time. Um, there's a willful um, hypocrisy there. And I, I think it's been the case in evangelical circles that we are willing to give people points for theology and to give them a pass, a great amount of curve on their ethics. Um, and, and that, too, is part of why we're in the morass that we're in right now, uh, is we're an overly doctrinal um, religious movement, an overly pietistic religious movement, um, and, and have an insufficient view toward Christian ethics uh, mm. and living out the faith. Uh, in the world, so that you could condemn a Dr. King who, who, you know, Edwards couldn't carry his books uh, when it comes to sort of public ethics, um, but you could praise an Edwards. It seems to me that, you know, we're, we're we sort of have unequal weights and measures, and I think we need a, a sharper, harsher uh, criticism of Edwards and the like.
1: And the basis of condemnation of a Dr. King, right, is sort of different theology and, what we know about his personal life, essentially, which
2: yeah. is yeah, yeah, the the the, the comments about uh, marital unfaithfulness and things of that sort, mm-hmm. um, and 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 it's crazy, right? Because it, it, it because our approach to this is wrong from the start. We we can be tempted to sort of enter into a a, a wretched conversation about kind of whose sin was worse, right? They're both sins, they're both terrible. Um, we we won't excuse either of them. But, but if we had to press it, you had to go, Edwards, prop, it appears with no qualms of conscience at all, yeah. owned persons, whole persons, whom he recognized to be persons, reduced them to slavery, participated in a transatlantic slave trade by, by purchasing Venus and, and, and other slaves, um, did that every day, right? Every day, uh, without, without right. He, now he wrote on like every subject, <laughs> known to man at the time, without barely leaving a scrap of writing on the issue. Um, that's a level of, of, of either seared conscience or willful blindness or hypocrisy that should stagger the soul. That should stagger the soul. What we know of Dr. King, he wasn't out committing adultery every day. Um, again, not to make light of it or anything of that sort, but... You know, I just think the way we view these things, beginning with who is our hero, really skews us in some unhelpful ways. And I, I just think we need a a more biblical level gaze and assessment um, of our heroes and and the telling of history in in rich, textured ways and pointed ways, lest we lest we share in the faults of our heroes. Hmm.
1: Wow. Well, and I think, Vida, you've opened up some interesting lines of thinking there. I know for me and in looking at like, there's a whole thing you said about the sort of our, our pietistic movement and theology versus ethics, which I think actually very much influences how Christians view politics, right? Through the lens of identity and symbolism more than through the lens of consequences for people, yeah. actually, like when at its worst. Um, and I think, I do think that is a strain that you see actually throughout lots of our conversations. Yeah. Well, it looks like, Ben, you, you, I think I think the upshot of that is you might want to look, look for a different dead mentor.
2: <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. He, he's rubbing his chin real hard. He, he's got some pushback for Edwards. Go ahead, brother.
3: <laughs> yeah, the case I'd make for Edwards, like, I won't defend, like, there's no defense of him participating in, in slavery. I do think he, <laughs> this is such a terrible, I don't think he's as bad as Whitfield, like,
2: no, I agree. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah.
3: So not that that means anything because the standard isn't George Whitfield, Right. And I think <laughs> as I think about justice and injustice, like I think the reason I hesitate to jettison Martin Luther King or, or Edwards is the greatest injustice is our sin against a Holy God. Right. And this is why we need Christ. And so I don't know, there is, there's a, there's a sense in which, there's a sense in which we're all guilty of. I, we all know this, right? Like this is, we're all guilty of an injustice far worse than anything Martin Luther King or Edwards did. The the key difference, though, as we think through this, is like repentance and like did they recognize it? And that's that's. I think in Edwards' case, it's clear that he he didn't. Um. Anyway, this is this has been a lot but, of that he didn't what didn't recognize that um well at least he didn't repent of man stealing
2: yeah.
3: right like yeah, yeah.
2: So, I, so i would use the word yeah. repent i think he recognized it yeah just, just based makes- on the little sketchings that we have just the outline that he had of, of his defensive doolittle i think he recognized it.
1: well and what you just said wrote about everything but this topic that's a pretty glaring that's a fairly that's almost like a tacit admission in and of itself None. You knew it was wrong, and you were just going to avoid the subject. But, but actually, Ben, your question's a good one as we look to our uh, to after the break, because I want us to take a break, and then I want to talk, us to talk about how the Christians should view and view the confrontation of history and the confrontation of sin in the past, um, because I think that's actually where this ultimately has to go. How do you deal with um, the darker elements of history in our past? So we'll take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk about that.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a faith strong enough to hold us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing. The kind that comes after painful trauma, grieve, Breathe, receive, is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more.
1: And we're back. So I mentioned... Um, before the break talking about confronting history. And I wanted to tell one other story here. And this is something I learned recently from my own reading uh, because I think going back to the civil war comparison, I said earlier that a lot of us would say that the lost cause mythology was our way of reconciling two halves of of a divided country. We agreed to ignore certain aspects of history in order to move on. It was a means of reconciliation, um, good or bad. and so. I recently read the story of kind of Germany after World War II, and this kind of made me think about some things, and I wanted to tell it to you guys and get your reaction to it. So if, you, if, if either of you have ever visited Germany today, you'll find that it's a country that like very much does not flinch from telling the whole story of the Holocaust, right? If you go to a museum, like you'll see sort of um, in full detail and full color, right, at the at the former concentration camps, what happened, being really open about it and being apologetic about it, really, like on the world stage, et cetera. And I remember being introduced to that Germany in like, you know, the 90s and the 2000s. But then if you read the history, what you learn is that it wasn't always that way and that it wasn't a foregone conclusion. So immediately post-World War II, it's, you know, 1945, and they're rebuilding Germany and the vast majority of working age adults participated in, you know, the Nazi state. Um, you know, and so you've got all these people and what do you do with them? And what they say is that that first generation had to choose between justice and peace and they mostly opted for peace. They mostly sort of swept it under the rug, similar to the lost cause mythology we're talking about. And it was their children that confronted them with it. So the sort of 1968 was a big year in our country. It was a big year on the world, really. Student protests everywhere. Part of the movement was the children of those people saying, you know, you, you all were Nazis and that's not okay. And it found its way into um, the German government. And there's this iconic moment um, in 1970 when uh, the leader of Germany at the time, a guy named Willy Brandt, he goes to Poland. And um, Poland is where many of the worst concentration camps were. And there's this picture of him at a memorial kneeling and apologizing on behalf of the German people for what Germany had done and again i'm not going to say to say germany does everything perfectly but that's sort of the beginning of the germany we know today when you go and you see they confront there were these evil things germans did these evil things and you could argue that in that case repentance has kind of set germany free and within two generations right it's been 150 years since our civil war and we still aren't as honest about our crimes against humanity as the Germans are about theirs. And so I wanna just kind of put that out there and ask what lessons does that hold for us in what it takes for us to confront our history?
2: Yeah, I, I think I think you've already teased out the most important lessons. Um, that, that before there can be genuine and deep reconciliation and freedom, uh, there has to be a commitment to truth-telling. Um, just can't be, reconciliation there can't be freedom um, unless there's truth the truth shall make you free um, and we've not had a constructive project in in telling the whole truth um, and uh, you put your finger on on a significant problem we, we're not when I say we the country writ large um, culturally speaking we're not repentant for that history we, we may we may be remorseful but we're not repentant we've not we've not sort of owned that we did this um and that um it was horrific and and that there there needs to be uh, some kind of of acknowledgement of that that's deep and profound and um the other thing about Germany is that there's some restitution made yep. uh, and and we have not also committed ourselves to restitution. Um, and so the, the modern day conversations about reparations and things of that sort is the conversation about restitution. And what you're hearing is a lot of people saying it's impractical, it's too much, uh, it can't be done, I don't owe it to you, I didn't do it, you know, lots of comments that, that betray a lack of understanding about how at a national level, a cultural level, um, these kinds of things must be addressed if we're ever going to really progress toward them in a in a deep and lasting way um i mean i think i think
3: yeah that the Germany example is a good one i a couple of thoughts one the nazi state ended and after you know after reconstruction you know this country went right back to racial oppression and so there's a lot longer tail there um and so that's yeah, that's one problem. And, and I think, even, you know, obviously up until today, there are still uh, cultural, economical, political factors that still oppress um, African-Americans in particular, but minorities of all types. And so it's not quite as clean, clean an example,
1: right? The Confederate state green. ended too. What's that? Right? The Confederate state ended too. We chose right. to let its successor governments perpetuate yeah. the wrong. Yeah. Right. That's it. Whereas we did not let Germany's successor state <laughs> uh, yeah. perpetuate the wrongs that government had done.
3: Yeah. The other thing I'll say is like, um, I'm a little more pessimistic <laughs> about. Yeah. So I mean, the far right in Germany is ascendant, right? As of as of today. So it's not as if their transparency um, has protected them from similar elements reemerging. So I don't want to – so my support for principles of restitution and reparations, which I have, are not because it's politically expedient or a silver bullet for solving, you know, structural political problems. South Africa is another one. Like, again, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like, w- like wonderfully conceptualized process. South Africa today is having all sorts of problems – Many of them racial. Um, it's it's a pickle, right? And so I think that there is some who will criticize uh, restitution as like, well, that won't change anything. And it's like that's not that's not the point, right? It's it's more of a we are trying to we are trying to repair. And there is there is nothing. We've had this conversation before, but there is nothing that can truly repair wrong to Jewish people in Nazi Germany or African Americans in this country for 150 years, uh, there is no balancing of those scales, right? And so, yeah, uh, it, we have to recognize the limitations of, of being transparent and, and reparations, restitution.
2: I, I like your point because what you're saying is, we, as Christians, we need to take the positions that we take on principle. Yeah, for or against, they need to be principled decisions rather than pragmatic decisions. Um, and um, it's, it's okay if if we abide by principle and it doesn't quote unquote work. We're still right, right? It's, it's horrible if we abandon principle because we think it, it will or won't work right? Um, and so we've got to be people who, who marry principle to practice. Um, and if we, gotta, if we have to choose between the two, we choose principle, we choose to do what's right, uh, rather than to do what's expedient or to do what's pragmatic in that sense. And and right, in a fallen world, we, we, we're not expecting to usher in a utopia. Um, we're just, we're not going to bring in Christ's kingdom, Christ will bring his kingdom in full when he returns. And so we, we got to expect that even our best measures um, may wind up being short-lived um, or producing little of what we hope for. Uh, that's just a reality in a fallen world.
3: With apologies to our post-millennial friends, yes.
2: Yeah, they, they're wrong.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and to bring this full circle, Edwards was one, so there you go.
2: <laughs> exhibit Exhibit A. <laughs>
1: I do want to press one point there, because I think it's important. I don't, I'm not holding up Germany as like the example of everything. What I would say is what I find remarkable about it, because um, in South Africa, there, that, that, that was the other model I had in mind. But in South Africa, what you had was a transfer of power from a white minority to a black majority. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about Germany is the same people and their de- descendants are in charge that were in charge back in the 20s and 30s Mm
3: -hmm. and
1: they are able to talk about their history and to self-criticize right in a way that say a scion of an old political family in Alabama might not be able to right like in terms of I'm the pull of this is my heritage and these people are my ancestors is too strong to be able to simply say no I repudiate what they did and I can still be proud of where I come from and who I am, right? And I can still um, you know, say, this is a great place. And I think that actually that's the rub I sometimes see if, if I think about like, because somehow Germany managed to be you know, proud to be German, right, like, but at the same time to say, and there was this dark period in our history and it was wrong. And I think that for the American South and indeed those in other parts of the country that also have a really challenged racial history, there is an unwillingness to simply say, we are guilty of, uh, you know, our ancestors were guilty of these terrible things, and it is possible to move beyond them and to be redemptive in the way that we look past them. Um, we haven't yet figured out how to do that, I think. Cool. Last question then advice yeah. to Christians who, um, to, on how to be prophetic on this topic?
3: Well, uh, I'll go first for once. Look at this. <laughs> I mean so I don't know there's so there's so much of this conversation has been me like thinking through like what you know how do I engage with the past I mean uh, yeah I think being committed to being people of truth is is hugely important Um, I think yeah you want to have open eyes to to good and right things and bad and horrible things that have happened in the past Uh, I think too having your identity in things like heritage or nationalism or the fact that your grandfather has a statue downtown like all of those things are misplaced um there's so much of this that rubs up against like formulations of identity that we all kind of have um and yeah your identity shouldn't be in any of those things it needs to be it needs to be in christ and if your identity is in christ then Hopefully, if this Holy Spirit's working on you the, the kind of tenseness that you feel when a monument comes down um, is mi- is mitigated lessened goes away entirely I hope because um, those things are just they're all going to burn those monuments are all going to burn anyway like they they're not going to last, and so being committed to to those types of things or a false view of history when we know the God of all history is coming back to remake the world. Uh, SEC's fit just seems I mean it's it's misplaced that's not even a strong enough word it's foolishness um, and the other thing that strikes me is being kind of knee deep in, in Titus this week um, you know when when you read that book on the surface it's like oh right doctrine right doctrine how elders have to be able to rebuke false doctrine but it's interesting how Paul defines right doctrine as right living um, and And we need to be living right if we want to be good practicers of doctrine. And so that applies to how we evaluate Christians, other things, all sorts of stuff. But but really, um, to our Edwards, Martin Luther King discussion, um, yeah, if you don't have right action, you're not a good theologian, no matter how impressive your treatises may be, um, and vice versa. So... That was my other, my other takeaway.
1: See anything you'd
2: like to add? Uh, maybe lots of dittos. Ditto on we need to be, if we're going to be prophetic in these things, we need to be committed to a fulsome telling of the truth. Uh, the truth will make us free. Uh, and we need to understand that oftentimes uh, prophetic speakers um, who tell the truth, they, they get the snot knocked out of them. Uh, right, so so we need not think that just by standing and telling the truth, the path will be easy. Um, because if we're right that people are vested in idols, um, then they're going to be angered by the truth. The idol is going to be upset. Um, but we need to be no less committed to the truth. The other thing I would say, in, in service to the truth, is read, read a lot, read widely. Um, if you if you can't list any books you've read. Uh, on on civil war history or the kinds of things we've been talking about here, um, that's that's probably a an, an invitation to uh, pick up a couple good ones and and get into it and and sort of know know the story, know the history well uh, if we're going to be prophetic about the history. So read read widely, read intently, uh, read with pencil in hand. Um, and then the last thing I'll say, Nick, is I do think we need to be committed to kind of you know whiteboarding this whole project of, of sort of history and monuments in, in terms of our own personal view of them, right? So we should just probably go to a blank slate and say, okay, with my Bible open, what what guidance am I being given by the scriptures as to what I should memorialize? Um, and um, just, just sort of start from there and and develop a constructive project from the Bible, because if you begin this project with, should this monument be t- be taken down, or should these be left up? You're too far downstream. You've already bought the sort of worldly poles on this issue, uh, without asking the first question of, well, what what does God say? What would God have me do? Uh, how would God have me think about how we memorialize events and history, uh, and then sort of move out from there? So I would just say, you know, get yourself a blank slate. Go back to the Bible, think about memorials and statues and things of that sort in the Bible. The command to remember is all over the Bible. Um, consider what kinds of things God causes people to remember. And then let that ref- let that be reflected in how you think about that form of remembrance that we call history.
1: Yeah, uh, Lots of dittos for me. I think the point about beware making idols, beware how we honor is really important. Being committed to truth telling is important. The only thing I'd add there is, I think, our ethic of repentance. Mm is how we confront history. I think in our country, but in general, it's important. It's how we live with it. It's how we avoid this false choice between you either hate our country and its founding or you love it and are unapologetically committed to it. It's like, no, 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 we love this country. We love this country so much that we are willing to repent for the sort of sins of our ancestors um, and recognize them as such. And I think that's a mature view of history, one that can still allow you it goes back to what we said before about the American myth, um, to still kind of celebrate your country, precisely because it's able to have those truthful conversations. I think encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those that come from those sorts of heritages, um, is an important thing all of us can do. Mm-hmm. That in mind, you wanna go ahead and pray us out?
2: Mm. Lord, well, we do thank you for the gift of time. And we thank you, Lord, for life. Thank you for the extension of life and time and uh, the ability to record it and reflect upon it. We pray, O Lord, that we would worship you alone and not our history, not our family stories, certainly not monuments of stone. We are reminded that uh, idols and false gods have eyes, but they do not see, ears, but they do not hear, mouths, but they do not speak. There's no breath in them, and those who worship them are like them. And so we pray that you would keep us um, harnessed and focused on you, Uh, the the living, breathing, speaking, seeing, all-knowing God, the one true God, Um, and that we would, Lord, memorialize your great acts of salvation, particularly Christ and the cross and the resurrection and the hope of a coming kingdom. And, uh, Lord, we pray that you would free us increasingly from loving this world in the wrong way uh, so that we could love you rightly and loving you rightly be useful in the world. Help us, O Lord, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.